Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Rough Draft. I'm your host, Reza Aslan. Our guest on the pod today is Stephen Canals, probably best known for the FX show Pose about New York's historic drag ball culture. It's an amazing show if you haven't seen it. What I really love about Stephen is that this is a guy who grew up as an Afro-Latino queer man in the 1980s. Basically, his only solace was watching TV, watching movies. And like a lot of writers of color or LGBTQ writers, he faced this dilemma where he never read about or saw anyone on TV or in the movies that looked anything like him or that dealt with the same issues that he dealt with as a child. And so... When he finally had his opportunity to make it as a writer, he made it his goal to essentially insert people like himself in his stories and in his TV shows to make sure that that Afro-Latino kid today or that LGBTQ kid today sitting at home watching TV, wondering if there's anybody else out there like him or like her, now suddenly understands that, yeah, there are. There are characters out there like them, that there are writers out there who are writing these kinds of characters. And it really brings up this larger conversation about the responsibility that writers have to create proper representation, right? To make sure that the characters that they invest with life uh, and with dimension are characters that look very much like the world out there right? Telling stories that aren't told uh, as often. And let me tell you something, New York's drag ball culture is a story that actually hasn't been told. And all you need to do is watch one episode of Steven's show to understand, like, this is a story that is begging to be told. And yeah, I mean, look, it's starting to get the attention and the awards that it deserves. But most importantly, the lessons that you get out of this conversation with Stephen are absolutely invaluable to any writer, no matter where you are in your career. This is a guy whose show got rejected, what, I think 30 times? 30 times people said no to Stephen Canals until finally someone said yes. And that show now has been enormously successful. And it brings up a really important point about writing, which is that this is tough business, man. This is very difficult. Becoming a successful writer uh, is extraordinarily difficult. And so it's not just about talent. It's about resilience. And that's a lesson we definitely learn from our conversation with Stephen Canals. We also have a little something extra for you listeners out there, a performance by the Trans Chorus of Los Angeles. So without further ado... My conversation with Stephen Canals.
Stephen, what a wild ride you've been on right now. I mean, the Peabody, the Emmy nominations, uh, the first Latinx producer to be nominated for an Emmy. Billy Porter, first openly gay man nominated for acting. Janet Mock and Our Lady J, first ever nominated trans producers. I mean, uh, we talk a lot about shows that sort of push the envelope and sort of uh, create new roles for people who don't norm you don't normally see on television. And you've just taken that to a whole nother level. So seriously, congratulations Thanks. to you. It's, it's, you. it's a real honor to have you here. I'm curious, like, how does it feel to have, um, you know, the stories of people who were historically erased uh, suddenly come to such um, prominence, you know, that, that other people are now starting to recognize these voices, these characters, and that you're actually being rewarded for it? I mean, that, that must feel amazing. I mean, yes, it's, it's equal parts amazing. And, you know, obviously there's a huge responsibility attached yeah. to how amazing it feels. Um, because historically in film and in television, we haven't seen, uh, you know, people of color who also happen to be queer right. and trans yeah. represented. Um, you know, and so I think as someone who, who checks those boxes, uh, it, it's critically important, A, for me to see myself. And I know that if I now, you know, a year away from 40, I'm not seeing myself, then I have to imagine that there are plenty of other people who feel the same way. And so critically important for me to create content right. for, for those historically marginalized groups. It's, it's funny, um, I was reading the GLAAD report that just came out a little while ago, um, and they were saying, so it was very celebratory. They were saying there was a, a record 26 trans characters on TV this last season. Uh, and uh, literally the first time that LGBTQ characters of color outnumbered um, white ones. I'm pretty sure that's like 75% just pose. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. congratulations, Glad, but that's mostly you, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, the show boasts the largest cast of transgender actors ever assembled. It's the largest cast of LGBTQ uh, recurring characters, period. Um, how much input does the cast have in the way in which the stories are uh, put together? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think they unknowingly influence story. Mm. They aren't in our writer's room, which, you know, our writer's room is very small. There are only five writers. Um, it's myself, uh, Ryan Murphy, Brad Falchuk, Janet Mock, and Our Lady J. Um, and we really have become a, a brain trust. We're our own house, if, if you will. Um, you know, Do you guys have a name? In, I call us the House of Murphy. He does not enjoy that. But. That's honestly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, he's always yeah. like, girl, stop, don't call it that. But, um, you know, but no, I mean, we definitely, we spend so much time with the cast on set, talking to them about their lives. And so parts of, of things that they share with us will make its way into, into an episode. But in general, no, we aren't spending a lot of time sort of having them feed us story i think what's important for the audience to know and to to keep in the back of their mind is that these women these incredible actresses who happen to be having a trans experience are actors right. you know because i think that uh 
some folks maybe confuse what they're doing on screen and assume that they're just playing a version of themselves. And you obviously find ways to locate yourself in the narrative as a writer, certainly as, a, as an actor. That's all performers um, do. Absolutely. But the reality is that they're playing characters. You know, mm. MJ Rodriguez is not Blanca. So. <laughs> uh, she is to me. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I was, I was thinking about this, and I, I, I don't know how you'll even take this, but um, when I first heard about Pose, uh, my first thought, and maybe this is because I've just been in this business for too long, was how the hell did this get made? Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's been actually a very long road. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you got uh, 150? I'm uh, guesstimating. Something like that, 150 notes, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just walk us through that, that road for, for a minute, if you don't mind? Where, sure. where, how did this start start for you? Like, do we have an hour? <laughs> um, so I saw Paris is Burning, this right. beautiful documentary directed by Jenny Livingston in 2004 uh, when I was an undergrad studying cinema at Binghamton University. I was so incredibly moved by this documentary um, for two reasons. One is that uh, I, as a person of color who grew up in the Bronx, I just I saw very few representations mm -hmm. of folks of color you know, on screen, and certainly not LGBT people of color. And the fact of the matter is, is that in Paris is Burning, they're highlighting ballroom specifically located in Harlem, which is where my parents grew up. And so it blew my mind that this community existed right around the corner from my parents grew up and that I had no idea that they were there. So that was the first. And the second being that as someone who grew up in New York in the 80s, in housing projects, in the midst of both the crack and HIV AIDS epidemics, the fact that all of these incredible black and brown queer and trans people were able to, in the face of poverty and disease and violence, still be resilient mm -hmm. and manage to have a lot of love and create family and community, just I, what a beautiful message. Um, and so I remember thinking very vividly as I walked back to my residence hall room, that'll make a really great TV show one day. <laughs> Never thought that I would be the person right. to be responsible for making it. Cut to 10 years later, I'm at UCLA. I'm working on an MFA in screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And at this point, my, my brain is just a desert wasteland. And I'm like, I got to write something. got to write something. Yeah. And I want it to be significant. Um, and I spent a lot of time sort of assessing the landscape as someone who formerly worked in, in higher education as a college administrator, mm -hmm. I was taught, anytime you step foot on a college campus, it's your responsibility, your duty to assess the landscape, to identify where there are gaps in programs and resources, and then you use your knowledge, your power, your ability to create programs and, and policies to fill in those gaps. And so when I did the assessment of the TV landscape in 2014, it was being dominated by straight, white, cisgendered, male anti-heroes. You know, we were deeply in the midst of, you know, Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad, having its moment. You had Mad Everybody Men. Everybody wanted that. You mm -hmm. know, and so those were the kinds of stories that were really just dominating the airwaves. And I thought, where are, A, where are people of color? Because this was prior to shows like Blackish and insecure and Atlanta mm -hmm. hitting the airwaves. And certainly, and then where are people of color who happen to also be LGBT? And so Pose was written really out of a need to fill a gap. Never thought that it would ever actually be what it's become. You put together a pilot? I wrote a pilot, um, spent some time 
after writing that pilot, putting together um, what we call a show bible mm -hmm. in the industry, which basically just explains who all the characters are, what is the you know narrative for the entire, or the arc for the season, um, just so that folks have an understanding of where you see the show going. Right. Um, so I wrote those, those two pieces and then promptly sent them out into the industry. And it was opening up plenty of doors, but it wasn't keeping me in any of those rooms. People were saying, this is great, uh, what else do you have? Well, before we even got there, it was there was a lot of coded language. It was too niche. It was too urban, <laughs> which really just urban. means it's yeah. you know it's too queer, it's too trans, yeah. it's too black. Right. Um, you know, it's a period piece, so it had everything going against it, um, and so thus began two. It's actually a little more than two years, but closer to two and a half years of just going in and out of rooms, sort of doing the dog and pony show of like, pay attention to me, and this is this great piece that I have, and you know, on the heels of that, then having lots of execs saying, what else do you have? Right. You know, do you have something that's more commercial? <laughs> right. This is such a great lesson, by the way, uh, for young writers. I think people don't understand how much rejection mm -hmm. is involved in the things that you see on screen. That's part of the reason why when I heard about this, I thought, how, how did this thing get made? Not because I don't think it needs to be on TV, but because I've been in those rooms yeah. and I know who the gatekeepers are. I know who's on <laughs> the other side of the conference table. Yeah. And I know how often they, you know, th they talk the talk. And many times they actually will even go so far as to just purchase the thing just so they can feel good. They can, you yeah. know, send out some kind of press release. Look at us, look what, what we just bought. Right. But they have no intention we of love ever diversity. making yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. yet, to have the resilience to just keep going, I mean, I, I imagine a lot of it had to do with the fact that you really believed in this story. I think it's that. I also think that for, for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ plus people, when we are born, when we emerge from our mother's womb, like we are handed a packet. And in that packet, you know, in that kit is, you know, how to survive mm -hmm. as a fill in the blank, whatever your identities are. And so for me as a, as a queer person of color, you know, in my kit was resilience. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, we have to be persistent. We don't have the option to not be, you know, otherwise we're never gonna see any progress. You also don't have the option to fail. Isn't that true too? I mean, so yeah, often I think- but that's just noise though. You, really? I, I wanna hear about, more about this. Cause I, I hear from a lot of, uh, not just writers of color, but certainly queer writers, um, writers who have this extra burden of representation. Yeah, I don't feel that way. And I, I, you know, I think at one point maybe, I think now going into my 40s, like it's just, I don't know, it just, it feels like bullshit to me. It's like, yeah. that was, there was a voice in the back of my head, certainly in my 20s going into my 30s, that would have told me, like, mm -hmm. you have to compare yourself to your white, straight mm -hmm. male counterparts. Um, and I just don't feel that way anymore. Like, my barometer for success is me. I look out, That's I so know... weird, because my barometer of success is you. Oh, good. <laughs> so, what a coincidence. <laughs> Go ahead. But seriously, I, you know, I, I look at... I know what I'm capable of, and I look at the work that I've produced and the work that I know that I would like to produce. And so there's an inner compass within me that says, you have to continue to move, forge ahead, move forward. Um, and success to me is 
reflecting on the work that I've already done and knowing where my strengths lie. It isn't like if I spent my entire life focused on, particularly working in this industry, looking at what my white counterparts are doing or what access they seem to have in comparison to me as a queer person of color, like I just don't know that I'd ever get anywhere. It's like, that's just too much energy for me to expend worrying about what you're doing. Like, I'm gonna worry about what I'm doing, right. you know? You that's... do you, I'm gonna do me. So then after two years of uh, rejection, it suddenly lands on the desk of the almighty god of television, Ryan Murphy. How did that happen? I met an incredible producer in Sherry Marsh, who uh, most folks know her as one of the producers of, of Vikings, which is on the History Channel. And we had this incredible meeting, which in this business is really rare, um, <laughs> where we, we just we sat and we talked for two hours and we connected really deeply on life and love and you know business and at the end of it, she was like, we need to find something to work on together. And funny enough, the two years prior to my meeting Sherry, my team always used Pose as my lead sample. And this was the first meeting that I'd ever had where she'd read something else of mine. Interesting. And so I went in there like, well, why don't we work on this show Pose? And she hadn't read it. So she was like, I don't, what's that? And I was like, oh, what? So I pitched her the show and thankfully she had a working knowledge of the ballroom community. Um, and so she was like, well, I need to read that. And that was on a Friday. And my team sent it to her. And on Monday morning, she was like, well, we got to take this out. This is a show. This isn't just a sample. And my feeling was, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. For a long um, time. Yeah. And I don't know what's going on here. But so anyway, so she reads the pilot. She loves it. We start working on a formal pitch together. We take it out about a month and a half after really honing um, and reworking the narrative. Um, she had some really great notes about the story and, and she felt like maybe part of the reason why folks aren't interested in it is because you have particular areas that maybe just need to be finessed. Mm. So we worked on that and then two weeks into pitching it, uh, we got a phone call and it was Ryan Murphy saying, I hear, he's known Sherry for 20 years, mm. I should know, but he was like, I hear that you're out with this writer and there's this really exciting show out in the world that I want to hear about and so I want to meet you. And so we send him the pilot and then we sit together for 45 minutes. This was- What was that like? I mean- Well, it again, was really I, intimidating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, obviously very intimidating, but mm -hmm. also, you know, you're, you're sitting in room after room after room with people who not only don't get it, but who whose very worldview is so different from yours, mm -hmm. you know? And then you're in a room with Ryan Murphy, somebody who- The most prolific and powerful television producer. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, did, did he did he get it right away? Was he was he excited about it right away? Did he understand what you were trying to do right away? Yes, and here's the reason why. He, as someone who also spent a significant amount of time in New York in the 80s, in his 20s, also loved ballroom mm -hmm. and was a huge fan of Paris is Burning. And actually, the week that Sherry and I went in to discuss Pose, he had just acquired the rights to Paris is Burning. Oh, and he had planned on developing it into a television show. And here you showed up. And then I show up <laughs> and it's like- I already got one. Hey, I have a show. Um, and I think there were some, it's his story to tell, but I think there were some issues that he had sort of met in trying to adapt the documentary into a show, into a faithful adaptation of, of the doc. And 
And then I come in with this original piece and it's like, yeah, the doc's great and you can use that as like a starting point, but really and truly like, you mean, you can just create the characters, create mm -hmm. the world. And so I met with him, it's probably a week or a week and a half after he won a slew of Emmys for the People versus O.J. Simpson American Crime yeah. Story. So I was wildly intimidated because that was my favorite piece of television that year. It's so good. It's so great. And I thought, there's no way that he's going to want this. It's just, it's impossible. And we met for 45 minutes. And at the end of the conversation, he said, well, we're going to make that together. <laughs> were you like, okay, oh, wait, what? <laughs> to be honest with you, I was numb. Because here's the truth. Like, going into the meeting with Ryan, I was intimidated about meeting him. But my energy, I don't know what he would say about it, but my energy during that meeting was I had a very, like, I could care less attitude. And I mean... I, and let me be clear, like, I cared a, a lot about the story and, and the meeting that we were having, but I had been in and out of right. rooms at that point for two years. And so my feeling was, look, either you're going to be into it or you're not, <laughs> right. right? So I wasn't going to go in there, like, begging you to, to respond to the narrative. It's like, this is what the narrative is. Do you want it or do you not want it? <laughs> and, I, and I feel like that was my energy. And I was surprised that he just, he, he met that energy. I was like, no, I, I love this narrative. I love this world and these characters and here are all the ideas I have for what this show can be. Um, and it, that meeting to me felt like two kids on the playground in the sandbox sharing their toys, you know, where we just, we kept going back and forth and all these ideas were coming and he just kept putting them together and he was like, this is what, this is what the show can be. This is what it has the potential mm -hmm. to be. Um, which in some ways I think was maybe even bigger than I ever allowed myself to dream, to be honest. Yeah. There are some autobiographical elements to the show, and I want to talk about some of those a little bit, but I also want to talk about just your childhood and growing up in, in the Bronx, um, biracial, and you're, you're growing up in, a, in an environment in which, you know, you're, as you were saying earlier, you're watching TV, you're not seeing anyone who looks like you, you're not seeing anyone who kind of represents your experience. And, by the way, people say this a lot. I think there's a lot of creatives in this town um, who are um, either LGBTQ or who come from different you know, racial backgrounds mm -hmm. who have a very similar story. And, and I don't think people truly understand what it means to have that experience because mm -hmm. people don't get that TV is how we understand the world. TV Absolutely. is how I understood the world. Yeah. I mean, I was like an immigrant kid. I didn't know anything or anyone. And the only reason I understood anything about what America was is because TV told me what it was. And so this experience of watching the television and never seeing anyone represent your perspective, it's soul crushing. It's yeah. not just, you know, there's no entertainment for me. It's, it's deeper than that. It's more than that. H how did that kind of affect the way that you reconciled your own identity, not having anyone to sort of look to and say, that's me. You know, that's interesting because, you know, I think emotionally you attach yourself to the crumbs that you are given, you know? So I grew up in a mixed race family. Like my family is both black and Puerto Rican. So if I'm looking, if you're asking, Where's, when is the first time that you saw content that reflected your family? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I would say probably Pose, to be perfectly honest, because it's like, when was the last time that you saw a Black and Puerto Rican family? You know, it's like, right. I can identify moments where I saw Latin people on screen or moments where I saw 
black folks on screen, but in terms of both together mm -hmm. as a you know as a familial unit, I can't think of any. Certainly not growing up in the '80s and the '90s. You know, and then you add an additional identity, queer on top of it. It's like well, you definitely were not seeing yourself. You know, and yeah. so I think you know, for me, especially when I was still closeted, you know, like all of the specifically queer shows that I could identify, like your Will and Graces or your Queerest Folks, it's like they were always centering white gay men. Had almost right? nothing to do with your experience at all. At all, yeah. you know, and so again, I think, you know, you, you work with what you have, you know, mm -hmm. so that's the representation that that, that particular identity gets. Yeah. And so, you know, somehow it becomes enough. Um, but I now as a content creator, like I take that as a huge responsibility to say, no, that isn't enough. Mm. You know, like we, we need more, we need to see more. But I think as a boy, um, it's interesting because, you know, obviously like I didn't step into my queer identity until I was already well into my late teens, early twenties. So I don't know that I recognized that as a gap at the time. I can identify it now. Right. Um, you know, I think in terms of being, like being a person of color, like growing up in, in this mixed family, I think I was aware of it, but I don't know that I had the language for it. Right. Yeah. I wonder also if, um, now that you look back on it, did it create a little bit of an obstacle in you coming out? Did it create... Um, any kind of roadblock to you really reconciling and recognizing who you really were? Because, mm -hmm. again, you didn't have anyone to actually model yourself oh, after. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, let's just rewind to the 80s, right? I mean, before we began calling, you know, HIV, HIV and AIDS, you know, it was the, that was the gay cancer, you know? And so you think about the ways with which we were talking about a life at that time, mm -hmm. you know, um, all of the violence that's being enacted towards specifically black men in this country, you know, by law enforcement, like that isn't new, that didn't just start happening, you know <laughs> right. what I mean? It's like rewind, you know, mm -hmm. go back to like the exonerated five, go back even earlier than that. So it's like, again, it's like these are issues that we've been dealing with for how long in this country, you know, and as a people. And so I think, you know, growing up, I mean, you obviously, you internalize all of those messages. Um, and when you're completely erased from the narrative, once again, it's like, where do you, where do you derive your sense of self? You know, and I know there are gonna be people out there who are gonna say that's putting a huge responsibility on on the media, you know, and on but film and television. it's not the media, it's pop culture. That's the whole point of pop culture. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I'm just, those are arguments I've heard. Yeah. And my feeling is, right, but that we still have a responsibility, you know, we'd, and we deserve to be represented. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyway, all that to say that, you know, I absolutely know that I spent a very long time living deeply in a closet for that reason, you know. And we now know there are plenty of studies that show that film and television specifically impact your sense of self, Absolutely. you know, and impact your self-esteem. And, and so, yeah, I mean, of course I 
lived in a closet forever and ever and ever and took a really long time mm -hmm. to step into myself and dealt with a lot of internalized homophobia. You know, it just, I didn't see myself represented and I didn't see positive representation out in the world. And, and that was, it made it very scary for me. Sure. What role did writing play in all this? When did that start? If my mom was here, she would say that I was always writing. I was that weird kid that like, I used to suck the fun out of play. So I, <laughs> I, like I had a spiral notebook and I would write down like storylines for my toys. And then like all of my cousins and all of my friends were like, let's play. And I'd be like, sure. Okay. Flipping through, like we could do this storyline. And they were all like, or we could just play. Um, so yeah, so I would say that was like the earliest version of storytelling. But I didn't really think of myself as someone who had the potential to create content until I was 15. Um, I was part of an after-school program called Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice, and I worked on a, a short documentary about turf violence. And this was in the early 90s, so New York had sort of finally, or specifically the Bronx community I was living in, we had just come out of the crack epidemic, and then we promptly stepped foot into <laughs> uh, gang violence reemerging. Um, in our neighborhood. And so we wanted to highlight that experience. And so we spent seven months as high school sophomores working on this documentary that wow. was funded by HBO Family, which was a new network at that time. This was like 1994. Um, and about, so we worked on it for seven months and about a week from completing working on this film, one of my classmates who was a co-producer on this documentary was shot and killed. And at 15, um, you know, that experience was, was um, deeply impactful. One that I don't know that I've even completely unpacked at this point mm -hmm. um, emotionally. But what I can say is that from that experience, I knew that the rest of my life would be devoted to telling stories and specifically telling stories of marginalized communities, telling stories and uplifting the voices of those people who often don't have a platform and don't have the ability to be out there telling their story. I had mentioned some of the autobiographical elements that go into Pose. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I understand there are characters that you identify with that mm -hmm. you know share some elements of your mm -hmm. background and personality. Um, someone told me that uh, the character of Blanca is a little bit uh, based on your mom. Is that mm -hmm. true? Mm -hmm. uh, in what way? My mom is a, is a kindergarten teacher. And so she works with, you know, four and five-year-olds. And I think her spending time in the classroom and certainly, you know, my spending time in the classroom with her has impacted the way that I mm. view the world. But my mother is just, she's so mothering, you know, um, so is my grandmother. I mean, like the women in my family in general are like are just very, very protective. Um, and I benefited from growing up in a family of women who are all things, right? Like they are, they're funny and they're complicated and they're messy. <laughs> and it's just, it, it, I think the ways in which not just my mom, but my grandmothers and all of my aunts and my uncles um, have impacted my life is that um, I have a, a really great understanding of women and seeing them as three-dimensional people. Mm. You know, I think so often, especially especially as a male, as a cis male, um, you know, 
there's just a lot of stereotypes and, and really like just inaccurate representation mm -hmm. out in the world. And I think I benefit um, from being in a family where, you know, the women in my life are all things. Um, and, and so I use that as, as inspiration to craft narrative. Yeah, I don't know. I think like as a storyteller, I'm just, I'm so much more interested in exploring women. Yeah. Hey there, everyone. It's Reza. I'm sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this episode, well, then you're in luck, my friends, because Rough Draft is also a TV show. And you can watch it all right now, along with topics, other original series and exclusive programming from around the world. You can check it out for free on the Apple TV app, which is already on your favorite devices. With Apple TV, you can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can even share your subscription with up to six family members with family sharing, which is what I do because I have a gigantic family. Go to apple.co slash topic to start your seven day free trial now. That's apple.co slash topic. 
Um, what, is, what does the bald culture mean to you? Not just in your work, but I mean as, as, a, as a person. I mean, um, that's such a huge question because it's, it's an emotional, there's an emotional response to it yeah. for me. Partly because if it weren't for ballroom, I don't know that I would have ever come out. Tell me about that. What do you mean? At the time that I watched Paris is Burning, like I was still in the closet. Like I was, you know, deeply embedded in that closet. I had no desire to step out of it. And as I said earlier, just watching this incredible community exist in the face of all of these hardships, it just, it gave me strength. It made me feel that I had a responsibility to step out of that closet. Mm. Because I recognize that I am now standing on the shoulders of all of those incredible people. That in many ways we all are. Um, and so for me, it just I, I felt a huge responsibility, um, not just to myself, but to the community. Ballroom also represents love, it represents family, it represents resilience. Um, so those are the things I think about when I think of ballroom. I think most folks seem to immediately go to, you know, all of the ways that they've influenced and impacted popular culture, right. you know, voguing being the easiest thing to identify, when the reality is, um, for me, they, ballroom represents family, represents community, and that's why Pose is a family drama. You know, that was by design. You know, during the first season, when we were breaking story, the late Hector Extravaganza, he was one of our consultants. And I remember we were having a conversation and we were still crafting story. I don't, I can't remember if we were already shooting at that point, but um, I asked him the question, like, what's the one thing, if there's only one thing that the audience can take away from this show, what would it be? And he said, I just want the show to be about family. I need the world to know that that's what's most important to us. You know, it isn't about walking a ball and winning a trophy. It isn't about all of that. You know, that's what the world sees and that's fine. But we all know that it's about community and it's about love. Make sure the show is about that. See, this is exactly what I meant by uh, world building because there's so much history behind every one of these terms. I mean, you, you mentioned it yourself, ballroom culture gave you this notion that the, the world that you're inhabiting, the, the road that you're on is one that goes far, far back behind you. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, at least to 1860. I mean, that's, that's as far as we know, when it comes to New York ballroom culture, we're talking you can, you know, you can trace almost it back years. to slaves being emancipated. Precisely. And the racial element of it is also incredibly fascinating because as in so many things, uh, it began as an all-white uh, affair that um, black queens who were allowed to take part could take part if they lightened their skin. And so the idea that you had an entire generation of um, black people who wanted to engage in this culture who were once again being sort of left at the door so that they created their own version of it. You talked about 
the houses and the families and the way that these aren't just terms, like they have mm -hmm. deep meaning behind them. These are people who truly felt as though their, their actual families would not accept them. And so this was the surrogate family. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a, there's a line in the pilot I remember where um, MJ says something along the lines of a, of a house is a family that you choose. Mm -hmm. um, and the significance of that statement for an underrepresented, oppressed individual who, who has been completely rejected, not just by society, but by the people that they love. Yeah. I mean, it's profound. I mean, that kind of drama, it just, it begs to be on screen. You were talking about voguing. And this is the other thing that I love about it, this idea that so many of the terminology, voguing and shade, you know, that, that has now become part of our parlance, right? That people mm -hmm. just throw these words out, again, deeply embedded in this culture, profound meaning. Uh, voguing was uh, a way to mitigate violence, which is why it has that same feel mm -hmm. as like gang fights, but you're never allowed to touch anyone, right? right? So you, you cap violence in a, in a society. Mm -hmm. Shade goes all the way back to um, slavery. It, it, it was originally a way for slaves to, who were, obviously dehumanized and never really given an opportunity to um, express any kind of emotion or dissatisfaction, you know, with their masters, shade became a way to use the slightest twitch of the, of the eye or the, the slightest look to express huge emotion. And now what you've done is you've taken all of that and you've wrapped it into this family drama that you know, has become one of the most celebrated shows on television. I mean, I, I think it's it's truly remarkable what you've done. Thanks. I It's tough for me to take credit for the show and specifically what the show now represents, what it means to people, because yeah. Ballroom existed <laughs> before I was ever born. Right. You know, and certainly existed before I created Pose. And so... You know, I feel like I feel like I'm doing the Lord's work. You know? <laughs> like this uh -huh. is this is a community that has existed for decades. It's been at the forefront of popular culture through music, through fashion, through dance, and it is a community that has been first colonized and then appropriated. And so, you know, I feel like it's just it's my duty to to shift to shift the lens, you know, to shift the spotlight. Because the reality is that, you know, LGBTQ people, like we're the only folks out in the world who have to go out and seek our history. You know, like our history isn't taught in school curriculums. And if we're talking specifically about what it means to be an intersectional person, you know, it's like, if we're talking about LGBT history, we never talk about what it means to also be Black or Latin or Indigenous or Asian and queer or trans, you know? It's like, and so the reality is that what we are now doing collectively, myself and my collaborators, is saying there's an entire part of queer history that we've told and we've always sort of had the spotlight going that way. And we're just going, ah, 
and just <laughs> moving the camera a little and just saying, oh yeah, there was a whole group of people over here who were also impacted and affected um, and have influenced choices that you have made. Right. You know? Whether I was more aware of it or not. Correct. And so really that's all we're doing. Yeah. And I don't know that I deserve any special you know, you, commendations for doing that. But do you feel the weight of it? Um, honestly, I think it just depends on the day. Only when people like me ask you. Yeah, how yeah. dare you? No. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, sometimes. I mean, it, in general, no. Again, I feel like it, it goes back to what I said about the kit. You know, and it's like, I just don't know that I would be doing my due diligence or my duty if I, having the access and the privilege that I now have to create content, wasn't centering communities that have often been overlooked or silenced, mm. you know? So, you know, I, it's, it's a duty that I take on, right? So it doesn't... I don't feel the burden of it because I've made the choice to do it. Right. No one's telling me I have to do it. Um, with that said, I think the moments where it feels um, like an immense responsibility and one that I don't know that I have the ability to really rise up and meet is when I meet individuals out in the world and we're having face-to-face -face conversations. They've lived their whole life, right? And for some folks, this is the first time that they're seeing themselves and the impact of that. And so, you know, more often than not, it's like you're only getting but so much time to talk to an individual. I, I very recently, I was at the Brooklyn Museum and uh, this young woman walked up to me to tell me that she was a fan of the show, which initially threw me off because I'm not, a, I'm not an actor, I'm not the face of the show. <laughs> so it was very strange to have someone just walk up to me and know who I am. I was like, oh, this is odd. Um, but she was so emotional and she was like, I just have to tell you, you know, what the show means to me and why it's so important. And so in those moments, I sometimes I feel a little like, ooh, canals, what'd you get yourself into? Like, it's big because it's it's not just TV for the sake of creating TV and it's it's so much bigger than me or my career. And you know, it really is about you tapping into people's heart space. You I mean know? that and that's a huge responsibility. That woman is you when you were 15, but now she has something. Now she can define herself. Now mm -hmm. she recognizes herself. Now who she is is celebrated. I mean, that's magical. That's the mm -hmm. sort of the, 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 the what, what is pure magic of, of the, the creative process and, and, and the show itself. W one thing that I do think that is important, though, is that, you know, the show is unflinching when it comes to uh, the darker elements uh, of mm -hmm. the world of, of uh, ballroom. And, and uh, you know, there are characters who are dealing with HIV AIDS. There are characters who are dealing with botched surgical procedures. Um, I'm curious when you guys are in the writers' room and and you're you know putting story together, mm -hmm. um, how cognizant are you uh, when it comes to tackling you know, very real social issues that are being dealt with, not just by queer people but specifically queer people of color? If you want to know what we're talking about in our writers' room, just watch the show. I think everything that we um, wrestle with, everything that we are dissecting, um, all of the 
questions that we have sometimes mm. um, answers, whether they're right or wrong, all of that winds up on the page and winds up on the show. It's really interesting. So you're saying it, the questions more often end up on the page instead of just the answers. Like what, what yeah, you're struggling with actually tandem. shows up there. Yeah. Still, at the same time, I mean, it is, it's a TV show. It's got to be entertaining. I mean, there's obviously a lot of spectacle mm -hmm. involved, and that's all wonderful. The characters are three-dimensional. Their relationships with each other are why people just keep coming back and forth. But there are some very serious issues that LGBTQ people, particularly of color, are dealing with right now, today. Mm -hmm. And um, and it sometimes I just imagine the difficulty of kind of being in a situation where you are creating drama out of out of some of this stuff and and figuring out how to actually balance the spectacle the entertainment with some very deep serious shit yeah. right i mean this is just in 2018 there were um 26 trans people were murdered uh in 2018 the majority of them were black, and the majority of them were killed by someone they know. Well, specifically black women. Yes. And, and I should add that black trans women's current life expectancy is 35 years old. I mean, that's astonishing. That, how, how do you take something that real, uh, that hard to digest, and transfer it onto the screen in a way that doesn't come off like a, a PSA or a documentary that that still is drama that's still you know entertaining because it has to be I appreciate you saying that I think the jury's out uh, because the reality is I think there are probably some folks who would watch our show and say it does feel like a PSA mm. um, so you know I think it just depends on the space with which I'm I'm in um, you know, I think for us, it's about celebrating the full scope of a life. You know, so the reality is that we aren't simply our traumas. And I think specifically if we're talking about the trans community, um, especially representation of trans people in film and television, they're only ever their traumas. Mm. Right, And so I think when it comes to a show like Pose, what we're trying to do is celebrate the full scope of a life, which is, you know, I sit here now before you as someone who has plenty of traumas, but I also have a lot of joys, right? And that's what Pose is about, right? It's showing the full depth and breadth of what it means to be a trans woman or a trans woman of color specifically on our show. Yeah, um, totality of a life. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, part. and I think that we, in telling and representing the full scope of a life, we have a responsibility, a duty, if you will, to show every single aspect of what it means to live that life. Mm -hmm. So, spoiler alert for some folks, um, but, you know, on this season on Pose, on, on season two, um, one, of our, one of our trans leads is killed, you know, and there was a lot of conversation in our writer's room about that choice. And we wrestled with it. We really wrestled with it. We talked about it ad nauseum, going back actually to the first season. Wow. Um, so we spent a very long time making that decision. And 
when we ultimately made the decision to say, we are going to tell that story this season, it was on the heels of not one, but three black trans women being murdered all in the span of five days. And so we felt like, how are we telling this story and giving the full scope of a life and ignoring this important piece of the narrative, right? I think one of my, one of the things that made me nervous is I don't want anyone to ever watch the show and to critique us and say, the show feels like Disneyland. You know, it's a fantasy. And in some ways, it is, because I think that's what ballroom represents. I think there mm -hmm. is a fantastical element Absolutely. to it. But yeah. the reality is that these individuals are still living in New York in the late 80s and early 90s with very little access to medical resources, to uh, housing, to employment. And so while that doesn't necessarily sound like the most fun show, we do still have a responsibility to tell that story. Of course. Um, you know, are we always going to get it right? No. You know, and we were heavily critiqued by some people about the choice to have a character be killed this season, you know, and we all knew that going into it, but I think we felt it was more important to tell the truth, you know, mm. and hopefully in doing that and making that choice, it would force our audience to engage one another in a conversation about the reality of what it means to now be a transgender woman in 2019. Yeah. Last question. Um, we've talked about the power that television has, that pop culture has to shape perceptions, to help people define who they are. A show like this, especially, that has captured you know, the imaginations of so many people, regardless of their own gender or sexual identity or their race or, mm -hmm. or what have you. Um, I'm curious, it, what are you looking for in allies? I mean, are there, is there something mm -hmm. that those of us who feel like we're, we're not a part of this community, that we're not stakeholders, but we are deeply embedded in um, the issues that we, that we care, that we love, and that we, we want to do something, like we, we feel somewhat powerless because in a, in a weird way, because it doesn't directly affect us, we feel like, well, maybe I, I'm not invited. You know, maybe I, I shouldn't get involved. Maybe I don't know what to say or I'll, no. I'll screw it up somehow. Um, what's, do you have some advice for, for allies? Hmm. Here's what I would like to say. I feel that I cannot, I should not speak for the trans community because I'm not a member of the community. I have a lot of love for the community. I'm an ally to the community. Mm -hmm. I see my work on Pose being a form of allyship. Um, I think that that question would be better asked to, to the trans community and specifically to not treat trans people as a monolith, but to ask individual trans people, what do you need from me? Like, what does allyship look like for you? So I think that's really important. So I don't know that I'm the right person to answer that question. What I can say is that, um, for me, Pose is a form of allyship. You know, it is my love letter, not solely to New York, the city that co-parented me. It's not just a love letter to the ballroom community, but it's also a love letter to the trans community to say, I see you, I hear you, I love you, I affirm your identity. Like, we will continue to fight for you. Um, 
you know, we need more people to continue to join in on that fight. Um, you know, for all the folks who say, who have approached me in the last two years since the show's been out, um, saying, I love Mother Blanca and I never thought I would have a connection to a trans woman or I don't know any trans people and chose is the first time that I feel like I now know trans people. Um, to all of those folks, I would say, that's wonderful. And now you have a responsibility and a duty to step up and use your voice to continue to fight for this community that is one of the most disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. This community that needs you because right now we are systematically killing trans people in this country and it is going overlooked. We're not talking about it. It isn't being reported in the media. Um, and I'm just, I'm, and I'm tired of it. Yeah. And so I think you should be tired too. Yeah, I'm tired. So we have an extra special treat tonight. We're gonna hear a couple of songs from the Trans Chorus of Los Angeles. Don't give up If you've ever been betrayed 
backs against the wall Cause you feel you lost it all No one left to call There's someone just like you Who feels the same way too Stephen, as you know, we always end our episodes of Rough Draft. By the way, I should I want to mention something. This will be good for the podcast, actually. Mm. Um, this show used to be a live show uh, many, 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 many years ago. And our third guest, I think our third guest ever was Dustin Lance Black. And you were in the audience. Mm -hmm. You were literally the only audience member of this show who has then showed up as a guest for the show. That's a pretty big deal, I think. You're welcome. Well done. Well done. Well done. So, you remember the five questions. Okay, here I we don't. go. Number one, what's your favorite book? Toni Morrison's Beloved. That's a good one. Oh, some fans, some fans in the back over there. I've read that book four times. She doesn't feel like enough, but... <laughs> yeah, it's something that you want to come back to over and over again. Yeah. Um, What's your writing process? I love to write early in the morning. How early? Um, just depends on how, when I wake up. So some days it's 6 a.m., some days it's 7.30. It really just depends. Um, but I sleep with my laptop right next to my bed. Um, so if I'm actively writing a script, um, you know, I can wake up and before I brush my teeth and wipe the crust out of my eye, just I just open right up the laptop it. and I just go to it. So there's something about, like, I don't know, this, I think this will resonate for other creatives, but there's something about your brain at that time that yeah. it just, it feels a little like a computer booting up. And there's something about being in that process that I really like to attack the page then because mm. it feels like I'm really open. Um, and then the writing doesn't feel like it's specifically coming. It doesn't feel as laborious because it doesn't feel like it's coming from me. If I'm coming up with ideas for story, which is a whole other process, um, which is the process I'm in now, um, that I like to spend a lot of time procrastinating. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot Certainly of time on it's not loud, uh, a lot of time on YouTube. Cooking elaborate meals. No, no, <laughs> this bitch doesn't cook. Um, so no, uh, eating a lot of meals, but uh -huh. not cooking a lot of meals. No. Uh, number three, if you weren't a writer, what would you be? Well, that's an easy question because I was doing that. I was working as a college administrator for almost a decade. Wow. So I would be working in education. What is, tell us what a college administrator actually does. Well, just, to, I mean, that's the easy way for me to say it because yeah. most folks don't know. <laughs> um, I started off in residential life. So I was a hall director. Mm -hmm. Then I went to school. I worked on a master's in student affairs. Um, my graduate research was focused on the experiences that um, black and Latin students have at predominantly white institutions. And then so... From there, I then shifted my career into working in multicultural and intercultural offices. So the last half of my career as an administrator was engaging students, faculty, staff, and parents in conversations around identity, you know, so mm -hmm. race, class, gender, sexual orientation, religion, etc. Uh, what is the worst writing advice you've ever gotten? 
don't do it. <laughs> don't do it? Like just yeah. don't like do just, that? Just don't, don't pursue it. I mean, oh, don't write. Yeah, like just don't write, yeah. yeah. Um, when, I, when I left the field, when I left higher education, I had a lot of colleagues. <laughs> like don't do this. Who were like, what are you doing? Like you yeah. just like you spend all this time. Eat? Right, exactly. Well, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. But um, you know, like you're, you just spend all this time working on a degree, and you know, you spend all this time working in this field. And I was on track to slowly working my way to being a dean of students, mm -hmm. and at some point maybe becoming a vice president and the president of a college. And it just didn't ever feel right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that suit that you put on and like the arms are like up here and you're like, mm, I need to get this tailored. That's how that profession, that's mm. how that career felt to me. It didn't feel right. I felt like I could be doing so much more good for the world, creating content, the content that I want right. to see versus being behind a desk, telling students how to live their best life. Right. That's pretty good. And then finally, what's the best writing advice that you can give to a young or an emerging writer? Hmm. Just be passionate. Have passion for the story that you're telling. Believe in the story that you're telling. You know, I think when I was at UCLA, one of the things that we were told often was, um, you know, like find a story that is unique um, and then write it in the way that only you know how, right? Because that's gonna be the thing that will set you apart from everyone else. You know, like everyone in this room, we could all be given the same writing prompt and it, no two uh, versions of that story are going to look the same because each of us brings our own specific and unique experience to the table, which I agree with, but I, I would take that one step further and say, I think what's really important is that you have to have something that you want to say. Mm. Right? Like, they're just, the work isn't just the work, right? So, for me, I would say um, just think about what your specific voice is. What is it that you want to say? What do you want your legacy to be? Um, and make sure that you infuse the work with that. So, you spent so many years uh, trying to make it, and you've made it. <laughs> you have enormous success, all of it well deserved. What's next? What's next for you? When you look down, hmm. sort of, I know you've got obviously a lot more pose to go. Yeah. Um, but now you're in this kind of sweet spot, right? Where you can kind of start doing some other things, mm -hmm. looking at some other projects. Is there something else that, that is kind of right around the corner for you? Something that you can share? No. <laughs> <laughs> Are there stories? Are there like um, worlds that you want to, to tackle? Is there something that you've always, like an itch that you've been wanting to scratch? Because you basically can scratch it now. Oh yeah, that's great. Um, sure, I mean, there are a couple of books that I'd be interested in adapting. Um, I'm a huge fan of comics, so I would love to do something in, in that world. Um, you know, maybe with Marvel. Get some of that Marvel cash. Yeah, exactly. Oh, please give me that Marvel sweet, cash. Sweet, sweet Marvel cash, yeah. I'm making a 10-episode <laughs> show. I need that Marvel cash. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think this is maybe a little different from the question that you're asking, but here's the thing that I definitely want moving forward is to continue to craft my, my table mm -hmm. in Hollywood because I think historically, women, LGBT plus people, uh, 
folks of color, we've not had a seat at that table. And so we've had to, you know, fight, beg, borrow, and steal to finally get a seat. And I think that when I moved here seven years ago to pursue this career in film and television, I always felt, you know, the idealist in me and maybe the hard-headed, you know, Bronx boy felt like, I'm going to get a seat at that table. Um, and the thing that I've learned specifically working with Ryan Murphy, but what I now know and what I feel deeply in my bones is I don't want to have a seat at a table that I have to fight to be at. You know, I'd rather find my tribe, which I've learned, you know, from, from ballroom and mm -hmm. from the incredible folks whose story I am telling. Um, you know, I'd rather go out into the world, even if it's going to take a little longer, and I will work on gathering all of the tools that I need, and we will build our own table. And then once I do that, then I can decide who I want to invite to have a seat at it. Yeah. You can have your table over there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's been a long journey that's brought you here, and you've got a long road ahead of you. I can't wait to see where it leads. Yeah. Stephen Canal. My thanks go to my guest, Stephen Canals. You can follow him at Stephen Canals, S-T-E-V-E-N-C-A-N-A-L-S. Uh, you can also follow the Trans Chorus of LA at Trans Chorus LA. You can hear a lot more of their songs and their performances. Thank you very much for joining us on Rough Draft. I'll see you next time. Rough Draft is a topic original series hosted by me, Reza Aslan. Executive produced by Reza Aslan, David Andrioni, Alfredo De Villa, and Safa Samizadeh Yazd. Executive producers for Topic are Ryan Chanatry, Anna Holmes, and Gina Constantinakos, with production aid from Russell Sperberg. Our music and theme is by Jacob Snyder, sound by Sean Oakley, editing and mixing by Will Stanton, with additional editing by Blake V. You can follow Rough Draft on Twitter at Rough Draft Reza, on Facebook at Rough Draft with Reza Aslan, or you can email us at roughdraftpodcast at topic.com. You can also follow me, Reza Aslan, at Reza Aslan. For transcripts and a list of full credits, go to topic.com slash rdpodcast. If you love this interview, be sure to check out our TV show, as well as Topic's original series and exclusive programming from around the world. Try it for free on the Apple TV app already on your favorite devices. You can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can also share your subscription between up to six family members with family sharing. That's what I do. Go to apple.co slash topic. That's apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Rough Draft. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.